Hey, it's Bob Stoffer. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Oilers Now ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The best fans in the game need the best content. Go live and behind the scenes. Oilers Plus. Access live practice coverage, pre- and post-game shows, behind-the-scenes original series, and much more. Subscribe now at OilersPlus.com using the promo code OilersNow, all caps, that's OilersNow, for a three-day free trial. As we head off to the River Creek Resort Casino Hotline, for the horses and horse racing, Alberta live thoroughbred racing on Friday and Saturday at Century Mile. For more information, visit thehorses.com. We welcome back to the show at the NHL Board of Governors meetings from Daily Faceoff, Frank Saravalli. Frank, how are you doing? Bob, I'm good. How are you? I'm not bad. I, I threw a screwball at the listeners today, and Valfontaine was the trivia answer, so it was a tough one. I was unaware that he went four entire seasons in the NHL without getting a penalty minute, but uh, I think he might be the oldest living Oiler from the WHA days. He played for the Oilers uh, basically at the age of 39 and 40, Frank. I think he's about 88 years of age now, so we had a little bit of fun on that front. Uh, you are where right now? I am uh, in New York City, Midtown Manhattan, at the NHL Board of Governors meetings, which uh, began just a short time ago, a little under an hour ago. And uh, they're expected to last another hour or two. Not expecting anything truly groundbreaking today. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about Ian Cole and that investigation with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about the race and gender report that is going to be served to the Board of Governors today, um, along with the usual run-of-the-mill league business, some financial statements, uh, some projected revenues, all those types of things with everyone in town. All right, so on the coal front, basically they weren't able to substantiate anything, were they? Well, no, they they were never able to contact, at least to our knowledge and at least to uh, what they put out there in the public sphere, the, the person who had made the anonymous claim from that newly created social media account. And so really without the cooperation of that person, it's impossible to substantiate um, the claims that were made. And not only that, but they did do other uh, investigatory work, including uh, background checks, conversations with uh, previous teams and employers, all those sorts of things about Ian Cole and didn't find anything of note uh, that would be related to this investigation. So they really had no choice. And, and quite clearly, the NHL Players Association wasn't happy, Bob, that this lack of sort of due process did not take place before he ended up being suspended. Yeah, it's an interesting situation to say the least. And Cass, you know, uh, perspective at you know, in terms of how things work these days on social media, et cetera, and everybody's got their own opinion, Frank, as you know, and uh, there's a big difference between the court of law and the court of public opinion when it comes to social media. So I guess we'll continue to see if there's anything beyond that at this time. Uh, So basically what you're saying is the PA doesn't think he should have been suspended in the first place. Yeah, I think their issue is there was no evidence to support um, any suspension. And, and really, it's not so much about Ian Cole, like, of course it is, but it's about the precedent and what happens next time around right. uh, when it comes to any sort of allegation that's made on social media. You know, let's say you're in the heat of a playoff series. It's the Battle of Alberta. You nailed it. Some crazed fan down Highway 2 wants to make a, an allegation uh, just out of the clear blue sky against one of the Oilers players and says, ha, I'll change the Battle of Alberta with the click of one button. 
that you can't have that happen. And so I think the league understands that. Uh, that's why they move so quickly and put such an emphasis on, you know, trying to uh, get as much information as they could. And when they didn't have anything at a certain point, they had to say Ian Cole is free to go back to work and, and go back to playing for the Tampa Bay Lightning. All right. Uh, you mentioned uh, you think there will be some not stricter guidelines, but at least a sense of where we're going to be headed in the next three years. I mean, the Oilers have basically got uh, Leon Dreisaitl for three more years under contract and Connor McDavid for four. I think for every Oiler fan out there, they're hoping that we see a 10 to $14 million increase in the salary caps around the league at that time in order to facilitate, you know, the potential re-signing of said players. Your thoughts? In three years, I think we'll see at least $10 million increase from where we are right now. Um, they're talking about the idea of a step increase, uh, which has been reported on previously. The idea of going from, you know, something like 83 to two years from now, 87, and then three years uh, beyond that, 92. Um, and so that's sort of the general uh, guideline at the moment. But this year, make no mistake about it, Bob, is going to be a really important year for league revenue to see as we get our first sort of normal full season back again in what can be in certain markets a really tough economic time uh, with the rise of inflation, uh, how does that impact league business? It's nice to make projections, but you have to make them come through. And that's the other part of it that, you know, you look at some of these teams that have started, even in Canada, teams that haven't sold out their buildings on opening night. um, Those types of things, I think, raise some eyebrows and question marks as to, hey, how strong is this projection? You know, you have an influx, an increase in money from um, something like helmet ads and jersey sponsors, and and the league is actually expecting somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of hundreds of millions of dollars when it's all said and done over the next handful of years in the increase in jersey ads. And you've seen a number of teams hold out and say, you know what, we haven't found the right deal yet for our jersey ad. We're going to wait and then make that decision when we finally get that threshold hit for what we believe is a really valuable piece of real estate um, in terms of the advertising game. So all those things factor into it. And, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's nice to project. You got to hit. Well, I might know an organization that's uh, waiting for that as well. Frank Saravalli joining us from the Daily Faceoff for Horse Racing Alberta Live Thoroughbred Racing Friday and Saturday at Century Mile. More information at thehorses.com. Frank, is there any concern that it's the same usual suspects in terms of revenue sharing? Like, I can tell you, because I had this conversation with people that were involved in the Edmonton Investors Group back in the day, that when we had the three-year window, uh, 2000, 2001, 01, 02, 02, 03, or check that, uh, 03-04, 02-03, 01-02, those three years where the Canadian Assistance Program was in effect, and Edmonton, Calgary, and Ottawa received $3 million each in terms of from the other teams in the league that there, there were some things that were frowned upon like openly competing for free agents and that sort of thing with uh, you know organizations that were shelling out money to to help with the Canadian assistance program well that pales in comparison to what organizations like Arizona have siphoned some would say sucked out of uh, revenue sharing for the last decade plus you know, north of $20 million a year. Is there any concern that it's the same, often the same usual suspects, or has there been enough uh, diversity in the teams that it hasn't become an issue for the league? What do you think? 
Well, I, I think it all depends on which team you're representing. Like, I think each market feels different and, and more strongly or less strongly than others. I think there's some markets that are going to be cutting a check every year and they're like, okay, like, I don't really care who the suspects are. Um, and there's other teams that are really fired up about it. I think the one real concern for Arizona is until there's steel in the ground and shovels in the ground with their new permanent arena, which still is a long ways off, I believe, then no one's really going to feel comfortable about their situation in the desert. I think everyone's really excited about the prospect of, hey, what is this you know, move to Arizona State University's mullet arena on a temporary basis? Does that give this team and franchise a little bit of a shot in the arm? Uh, they're expecting a sellout. Um, you know, for most nights throughout the season, given the small capacity and, and they did up ticket prices and all those things. But I'll tell you this, at the end of the day, when it comes to HRR and hockey-related revenue um, and, the, and the budget and all those things, when you're revenue sharing, if a team is dropping down in capacity that much, one of their big concerns is, you know, it's not so much that the capacity's changed. It's also the other things that have gone with it. So I, I've been told, and I've written this previously, that the Coyotes are projected to bring in 40% fewer revenue uh, dollars this season compared to last season, uh, even with the venue change. And part of the reason is that, like, yes, they may be selling out that building, but they're losing all the other aspects of, yes. of having your own building. You're losing the corporate sales. You're losing the advertising. You're losing the parking. You're losing all those different things that in some cases are going to Arizona State as part of this arrangement. And it doesn't make everyone else around the league feel comfortable, you know, especially as this team isn't even attempting to be competitive on the ice, that they kind of feel like in some ways I've heard other teams talk that they feel like they're funding this operation um, given everything that's gone on. So I think that's certainly something to keep in mind and keep an eye on, but I, I don't know that there's enough teams out there that are really upset by it that you're going to see meaningful change. Uh, why do you think Gary's, you know, so firmly entrenched from a league perspective with Arizona? Market size. It's the fifth biggest market in the United States. Um, there are a ton of Canadian snowbirds and snowbirds in general that go there, uh, particularly from your neck of the woods. Um, that I think they saw hockey work there in the first number of years that they played in the arena downtown shared by the Suns and that they just felt like they made the wrong geographical move to the valley there in, in Glendale and it just didn't work out. And now being in Tempe, closer to Scottsdale, closer to where a lot of the money is uh, in that market that perhaps they can find that fan base again, that it's a lot easier to commute there and there won't be any issues. But the problem is they're also doing it at the exact moment, as I just mentioned, that they're not trying to be competitive. They're not trying to win. And so it's sometimes hard to bring those fans back and in the building at the same time that you're doing that. Imagine being Dylan Gunther, Frank, and you're playing in the WHL final, Edmonton and Seattle, and he got knocked out of that series, but he played the first couple of games, and there was six to 11,000 fans at the, I think six for the first game, 11 for the second game. And he's going to play in front of crowds less than that on a nightly basis in Arizona. And some in Arizona are selling that as a success story. That is really something. 
Well, I can tell you this, too. There's a lot of consternation from players, and I think it's sort of lessened in, in recent weeks. But just with the facilities in general, their practice facility, they had to redo their uh, team locker room, and, and that wasn't finished to start camp. So I think for the first week to 10 days of camp, the Coyotes players were getting dressed in youth hockey locker rooms, and they're saying, look, we already feel like we're going into a season where we're not quite an NHL team given the venue that we're playing in. And now this? Every other team in the league, all 31 others, have a bona fide facility. They're in the big leagues, and this really isn't quite the same. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, shifting focus, Jacob Chikrin, you know, he's, I get, do you have a daily faceoff uh, board yet for the season, or what's going on there? A little early for trade targets, just as it's a little early for some coaching hot seat speculation, but um, Chikrin getting healthier. I saw he posted on Instagram yesterday. He's in uh, Phoenix, and so not uh, on the road with the team as they continue their meandering road trip, um, but getting closer to playing. And then I'd imagine at some point it's going to be a big motivating factor for Chicker and Bob to get in and, and hit the ground running and play really well so that he could try and you know, maybe force his way out of there with, with stellar play. We're joined by Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff. Bob Stoffer with you on Oilers now. All right, well, there are a couple coaches that already are getting a little bit of heat on them, and I'd, get, I'd like to get your perspective. Um, Lindy Ruff in New Jersey. Frank, i got to tell you, I, I hear a lot about New Jersey, a lot about Jack Hughes, and I'm kind of like, and maybe it's because hey, I was in Edmonton, and it was Nugent Hopkins Hall in Everly, and I, I sort of see a, a, a somewhat similar scenario with what New Jersey has. Like, they've got good players, but not, you know, not the McDavid's or Dry Settles of the world. How much heat is Lindy Ruff in, especially given the fact that Andrew Burnett came in there to be a, a pseudo-associate coach? Yeah, I don't think the Burnett, you know, situation and optics of that have necessarily helped. Um, I also think when you have opening night and your fan base is chanting for you to be fired, that's probably not a good start either. Um, And it it really was uncomfortable to watch. Um, You know, their second game of the season, it's on home ice. Their players had already declared in Miles Wood that that was a must-win game. And you're like, hold on, it's the second game of the season. How is that possible? And I I like his urgency, but I thought – Yesterday on, on our Daily Faceoff live show that Mike McKenna framed it perfectly, saying that he felt like that was an immature comment from an immature team, one that needs to grow and, and learn uh, to pick their spots. And so um, there were certainly an expectation of, of more wins and more results in New Jersey. And I think what also doesn't help is you mentioned, you know, in, in specific with regards to Lindy Ruff, like they went through this process, and it's not exactly a secret. I reported on it then that – they did a deep dive. Is Lindy, is Lindy Ruff the right coach for our team? I think the problem is with New Jersey, it's a tough thing to sift through because I think so much of the lack of results that they've had have been clouded by goaltending. If you take a look at their number underlying numbers, yeah. their five-on-five play, everything looks pretty good, but their goaltending at, at even strength is, is, is awful. And so they're in a really tough spot. Like, how do we navigate this tricky path? when we have a team that is expected to do a lot more, but also didn't really make or, or do enough on the on the back end in net um, in order to keep those goals out. Frank, another team with, for me, uh, and I don't think he should be a coach that is to be watched, but I know he's a coach that's being watched right now. You know, the Oilers were in the rookie tournament in Penticton. Vancouver had their staff there. 
The Oilers played two preseason games. There's something, sometimes you just get a feel with another organization, right? You just get a, it, there's something a little off there. Um, maybe give me your thoughts. Like, is it possible Bruce Boudreaux's on a shorter leash than maybe some people think? I think he is. And I think when you make comments like that after game three of the season, even though it was abundantly obvious, um, when you call your team mentally weak, I think you're, you know, you're putting the spotlight on yourself because whose job is it as a head coach to make sure that your team is the opposite of mentally weak? It, it comes down to Bruce Boudreaux and his staff. And they've had a really unfortunate string of, of events to start their year. I think they had a really underwhelming training camp um, and exhibition season. They're waiting for their stars to be their best players, and they don't have the depth otherwise to keep up with teams around the league. There's only so much you can ask of Thatcher Demko, and when you're defending that poorly, as Luke Shen said after the game in, in some really honest and critical comments last night in Washington, if you're not going to defend hard enough to compete in this league, like you have no chance. And when Thatcher Demko, a great goalie, has an expected save percentage in the 700s, like that's that's no recipe for success, let alone the issues that they've had on special teams with their penalty kill, uh, which is what sunk them in the first few months of last season. So um, I made a bold prediction before the season started that Bruce Boudreaux would be fired, uh, the first coach fired, and I, I did that partially because I do believe at the end of the day that management and Boudreaux weren't necessarily on the same page this summer, but I didn't really think that I would be speaking that into existence three games into the year. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to watch. Here's another one that's the whole situation with Horvat and JT Miller. You know what I mean? Like, Bo Horvat was drafted and developed by the Vancouver Canucks. Like, to me, he was a Canuck. He's your captain. And then, they, you know, we heard this Miller discussion and it looked like it was going the other way and he might get traded and City gets a long-term deal at $8 million times seven years. He had a 99-point season last year, a lot of it on the power play. Um, do you think that's maybe unsettled matters there a bit just with Bo Horvat knowing the kind of leader he was? Granted, they weren't a great team, but he was one of their guys. Well, I, I, I can't speak for the J.T. Miller part of it, but I know that there was frustration on Bo Horvat's end. Like, how come there was so much urgency to get J.T. Miller done for all the points that you made and not nearly as much for me? And how come, you know, we've gone down this path and you don't see me as nearly as valuable as maybe some other teams in the league do? I, I, I reported previously um, on Sportsnet in Vancouver the first initial offer that the Canucks made to, to, um, to the Horvat camp. And it was the deal that Ryan Nugent Hopkins signed in Edmonton. And, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, maybe the total dollars, what did that end up being? 41 and change. Um, maybe that's not all that far off, uh, but it still has a ways to go in terms of AAV coming up, which will bring those total, total dollars up. So I think teams look at the complete play of Bo Horvat and say, like, you know, this is a really reliable, consistent player in the league. Um, and does a lot of different things in order for you to achieve success. And I think he was bothered by the comparison of, like, he's like, I, I've been a better player and have done more in this league than R&H. Well, there's no, like, I mean, you watch Vancouver play. He's a good player. Final one for you. There's been a little bit of tracer fire on Patrick Kane. Some stories out of Chicago. Reality cl clicking in there that it's inevitable that something's going to happen at some point. 
I would caution against that and not to sound, you know, too conservative or anything like that. But, you know, the reality was always going to be the reality. There's no secret here like that. This team was not expected to be competitive this year. So um, he, I don't think he was expecting that going into the year. I think he wanted some time to digest also which teams around the league uh, are really strong. And, you know, I, I kind of view this, especially with the same agent, um, playing out very similarly to the way that it did with the Philadelphia Flyers and Claude Drew. It sort of seems like everyone's heading to that inevitable uh, divorce and, and sort of shake hands and go your separate ways. But I, I just I do think that you have to allow for the possibility, whether it's 10% or 20% or whatever it is, that at some point Patrick Kane says, you know what, I was thinking about it and I don't want to go anywhere. I think you have to allow for that possibility. It's not a total foregone conclusion just yet, but that's how I would map it out in terms of expectations and timeline and all those different things as we get closer to the March 3rd trade deadline. Frank, awesome stuff. Appreciate your time. We'll talk next Tuesday. Thanks, Bob. Have a good one. You bet. From the NHL Board of Governors meetings, one of the most plugged-in men in the business from Daily Faceoff, Frank Saravalli for the horses and horse racing in Alberta. Jamie Texas, Bob, the Arizona experiment has been a complete failure for over a decade. I'm not a Gary Bettman hater and constantly call for him to be gone. But the one thing I think a new regime would do is to not be so stubborn with markets that time and time again prove that it just doesn't work there. That comes to us from Jamie. We'll come back, get to a couple more of your texts. It's 12.55 in Edmonton, a game night. Edmonton and Buffalo, live Oilers now at Rogers Place. Welcome back, everybody. Snap, 12.58 in Edmonton. Brendan, do you have a favorite fraternity back in the day, like when you were at school? Do they have frats still? Out there at uh, where are we at Thompson Rivers? Uh, yeah, they did at TRU, but uh, none that I was a participant in. I, I I never joined. I was called a GDI, a gall darn independent. But uh, my favorite fraternity, Lambda Lambda Lambda, the Tri Lambs. I love those guys. They were awesome. This is Oilers now, where guests receive gift certificates to Roost Chris Steakhouse. Whether you're celebrating a special moment or simply saving a night on the town, every meal is an occasion at Roost Chris Steakhouse. Ninety nine ninety Jasper Avenue. Surely somebody gets the Revenge of the Nerds reference in there. Uh, you can tell Brendan and Chris that Oilers now sent you into Roos Chris Steakhouse. And we got an Oilers road trip coming up in Vegas in January. We sold out our trip to New York City. It's Vegas. It's the Golden Knights. All those attractions. You get uh, three nights at the five-star Cosmopolitan Hotel in the Vegas Strip. Game tickets will have a welcome reception with yours truly. The flights, all that stuff for the Oilers now. Hockey, roadie. Visit newwesttravel.com. Yes, I just dropped the trilam on you. Lambda, lambda, lambda. When we come back, Al May after a global news weather traffic update with Eileen Bell.